1: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Payments, two. Technical support, three. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why we collect, curate, and bring you the best audio stories we discover worldwide. We search high and low, on the air, the internet, via podcasts, and when they are perfectly paired and ripe for the picking, Sometimes you have to wait for it. We deliver the best to your ears each week on ReSound.
2: Your request could not be processed. You may hang up and try again later, or to speak with a representative, press zero.
1: Waiting has never been my strong suit. Why? Because it takes so long.
2: All agents are currently serving other customers. Please hold, and your call will be answered in the order it was received. Oh, come on.
1: Waiting for the phone to be answered can send me into a frenzy, let alone waiting for the phone to ring, or the envelope to arrive, the deadline to pass, the decision to be made, the worry, the build-up, the letdown. It's an exercise in torture.
0: Your wait time will be approximately two minutes.
1: Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Let's just talk airports for a moment, those most unique circles of waiting hell. Throngs of people, frustrated, annoyed, bored, waiting around, over caffeinated, and under-exercised. Third Coast Managing Director Sarah Geis recently experienced a flight delay, and the airline, trying to make the best of a bad situation, decided to host a talent show in the terminal. And I use the word talent loosely here. Oh my God, kind of american idol writ small
0: the you are all I love for all
1: i
2: worship and adore.
3: today on resound waiting
1: waiting in line waiting on a transplant list and waiting for a bus that is never ever going to come stay with us We're talking about waiting today on ReSound, so let's start with the ubiquitous line. Now, there are good things about waiting in line, like the temporary camaraderie that makes friends out of perfect strangers, but more often than not, it sucks. You've been there umpteen times, a ribbon of antsy, impatient people shifting from side to side, evil eyeing those who try to weasel their way to the front. While this can be the perfect setting for anarchy, there was one famous line outside Rockefeller Center that never ever devolved into chaos for one reason. And his name was Lewis. Here is In Line with Saturday Night Klein.
2: Lewis Klein is 59. He has cerebral palsy and a bum knee. His wife, Jamie, who's half his age, was born without ears and uses a special headset to hear. So they don't like to sit out in the rain too much. And it's raining, but they're there anyway about 20 feet from the neon marquee that says, Rainbow Room, Observation Deck, NBC Studios. The one you see in the credits to Saturday Night Live. Lewis? Hey, how are you? Okay, Jamie? How are you she made it. Lewis sits on his walker, which doubles as a stool. Jamie's got a comfy fold-out chair. They're second and third in line behind a kid named Danny, who's been there since noon. It's 2 o'clock now.
4: We, we got another 17 hours to talk about it. <laughs> Something like that. Talking is kind of what
2: Lewis now. does best. Jamie mostly keeps to herself, chiming in now and then with a weather it. report.
4: Now oh, so it says the last of the showers is at 9 p.m.
2: But oh, Lewis talks go, enough well, for the both of them, about their relationship, about his various jobs, start start bookkeeper, fuller brush man, but mainly about his purpose here. He's not well, just a veteran of the line. He's really the keeper of the line, enforcer of the line rules. Common sense rules, sort of Yes, you can go
4: get some food, you can go to the bathroom if you have to, and whatever the case may be, but you have to come back. We've had people they okay, I'm going to the Broadway show, I'll be back at 11 o'clock. You can't do that.
2: That's jumping, he says, the cardinal sin of the standby line. And if you do jump the line, Lewis will tell the person who hands out the tickets in the morning not to give you one. And she won't. Because Lewis has been doing this longer than anybody. And if you sit anywhere long enough, people start listening to you. Lewis was always in one studio audience or other He used to go to game shows a lot What's My Line to tell the truth
0: NBC Saturday Night
2: And the night that Saturday Night Live launched October 11th, 1975
0: Starring George
2: Carlin He attended the dress rehearsal Not only that, but he finagled his way Into the pre-pre-performance the day before And this is what I saw
4: A full-fledged routine Comedy routine by George Carlin full-fledged comedy routine by Billy Crystal, music by Janice, Ian, and Billy Preston, and comedy by the Not Ready for Primetime Players, including John and Gilda and everybody else. So wouldn't you want to come back? Of course you did.
2: So I did. And he came back again and again. And more and more people came, and in 1976, the standby line was born. People waited inside back then, and the rules and hierarchies just kind of developed. It was like Lord of the Line, And Lewis remembers the day, in 1982, that the conch shell was handed to him.
4: Uh, In fact, up until 1982, I was shy. I couldn't talk to people like this. I just couldn't. And one of the the reasons why I got out of it was because somebody in this line asked me to watch the line for them the following week, because they couldn't be here. Lou, you're here every week? Why don't you watch the line? He says, huh? And, and it means a lot to me that I was, I'm able to give out the information that I had bottled
2: up inside me. He'll tell people how the ticketing process works or just joke around with them. We
4: told people one time we were nudist on strike.
2: But he can be harsh when he feels he needs to be. Around 7.30 at night, the rain is gone and the sidewalk starts to dry. A few of the other regulars show up with sleeping bags. They're in their teens and early 20s, and Lewis says he has to keep an eye on them. He says more than once he's caught a couple of these kids celebrity trawling on the 50th Street side of the building, which is another no no. A couple more people come while Lewis is on a scheduled bathroom break. Zach, when he gets back, he tries demo? to sort out who arrived when. Where are you?
4: Behind Arlene or be in front of Arlene? In front? Does she know that? Everybody here knows. Wait. Just let her know.
0: Does she trusts us. She'll, she trusts all of
4: us. Otherwise, she'll you think you're jumping. That's not, not good. She's not gonna think he's jumping. I'm watching him like a She's hawk. Just let her know because what is she up to now, or what is he up to now?
2: You see? And then the minute they do something, whack, you got it. I ask a couple of these kids what they think of Lewis. We hate him, one says. She thinks he's mean, but she likes how he keeps people from cutting in line. Still, some standby goers just wish Lewis would disappear. There have been two petitions seeking to ban him from standby, one that he told me about and one that I told him about. The one I found had no name attached, but it accused Lewis of harassing people and reporting them falsely. He says whoever created it is probably just mad because they got caught doing something wrong. He knows who wrote the other petition.
4: And I knew exactly what was going to happen to it. It wound up in file 13.
2: And what's file 13?
4: The garbage can. You know what happened to the person that dotted it? She got banned.
2: I think. Because she wouldn't leave Jimmy Fallon alone, he says. And while Lewis has met every cast member, except Lorraine Newman for some reason, he says he doesn't ever obsess over them. He just treats them like people, friendly acquaintances who happen to be on late night TV.
4: Hey, what you, got, you got glasses? A few you got
2: glasses? hours later, Bill Hader, a guy who imitates Al Pacino on the show, yeah, comes out to spend time with the kids. Leave, the he might be the, the friendliest so right guy there, in the cast. I think my parents have a picture with them and Lewis. (laughs) Really? Yeah, yeah, I took a picture of my parents with Lewis. It's interesting because he was saying like he he thinks of y'all as people, and that must be really refreshing, as opposed to being fawned over. No, yeah, it doesn't. There's no
0: fawning at all, at all. No fawning at all. (laughs) Yeah, he's very much like I I didn't really like that last week. You know what I mean? (laughs) He'll say that like I I thought that was really bad. I I didn't like that at all.
4: So uh, yeah, he's a good guy though. Uh, yes, good uh, good evening. Hi. Uh, well, uh, we have a little broken glass on the sidewalk. Lewis has the, uh, NBC the
2: security the, programmed uh, into his cell phone. Lewis is mentioned on, on the, the studio tours. He's like an honorary uncle. And about 17 years ago, SNL told Lewis he could come to the show anytime he wanted. At first, they asked him to do standby anyway, just in case they didn't have a ticket for him at the desk. But then they told him and Jamie to just walk right in. Lewis doesn't have to sit out all night. He doesn't have to enforce the rules. He doesn't have to do standby. He does it because he wants to, and because he feels obliged.
4: In a way, I feel that they want me here. NBC does. Yeah, I, I feel that. They don't say it because they probably can't,
2: because I'm not employed by them. This is why some of the other standby goers feel okay about writing petitions against him. They know he's gonna get into the show anyway. And he should get in, they say. But he should also get a life.
4: What? The guy in the blue cap.
2: At around midnight, Lewis rolls his walker over to one of the few regulars he depends on to help him maintain order in the line. He asks her if she knows anything about the big guy in the blue cap who's standing 10 people back from the front.
3: Yeah, they apparently said that he wasn't here.
4: Now, we got somebody in the line now that jumped the line.
3: Lewis is going to
5: lay
0: down the law.
2: Lewis approaches the guy, asks him how long he's been there. The guy says he and his girlfriend had someone hold a spot for them while they drove up from Maryland. So you replaced one with two, Lewis says? You can't do that. You really can't do that. Now, you
4: have a choice right now to go to the back of the line and stay back there. One can stay here because they had a spot, okay? That's disgusting. No, it's not disgusting. It's you disgusting, wouldn't mind because I you, came here from Maryland. Man. I don't care whether you come yeah, from, you Maryland from or Hawaii. Straight. It doesn't matter. I see. I see how you do it. My Ready.
2: stomach is so dead. tense at this point so that, that, that I think that, it's going to snap.
4: But but you but you yeah. you 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 yeah. you are switching yeah. one person for two people. No, he is but Lewis says man, fights
2: so like this sure. don't bother him. That's He's fine. heard it all before. Yeah. Okay. Especially so this part. And
6: this is
4: what you do every weekend. We're watching watching the people don't do this. This is what you've done with your life. Congratulations, man. You see signing our lives. There you go. Later
2: on, they come to a compromise. My girlfriend says she'll move back a few spots. At this point, I don't know what time it is. The line's a long snake. Its head asleep on the sidewalk. Its tail boiling with energy. Everything about me aches. I start to think that going to Saturday Night Live requires Friday night death. And Lewis is subdued, but he's still up, still talking. He tells me about a short video that the cast made for him and his wife as a wedding present. Lorne Michaels appears at the end of it and says, Lewis, Jamie, congratulations.
4: If that's the way they feel about me, to do something like that, then hell, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to repay them for what they've done for me over the past 32 years.
2: Do I have a life? Do I? Yes, I do. In a few hours, the woman with the tickets will come. She'll be infuriatingly clean and well-rested. Louis won't you? know her, but she'll know him, good and she'll ask if everybody's behaving. Louis will say,
4: For the most part, we're behaving here. I think we're okay. I think we're pretty good.
2: And she'll listen we're to him, one, just right like always. And then she'll hand out more than a hundred tickets. And less than half of this line will actually get into the show.
1: In line with Saturday Night Climb by Sean Cole for the now defunct radio show Weekend America. Lewis Klein has finally, after three decades, retired from his role as line overlord and is now living in Colorado, watching Saturday Night Live in front of the TV, just like all the rest of us.
2: I'm now at the Greyhound bus station. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here till 2.25 in the morning, so it's going to be a long wait.
1: Waiting by its very definition, implies a purpose. Saturday Night Live tickets, your turn at the DMV, sitting on Santa's lap. And if you're waiting at a bus stop, your goal might be mm, getting on the bus. Not so fast. In our next story, the bus stop is there, the people are there. The only thing missing? The bus. Lulu Miller, in a story she reported for Radiolab, explains. All right, so I'm going to tell you a story.
3: Takes place in Germany. Guten Tag at an old folks home. Guten Tag. Hello. <laughs> and that's not where we are right now, but we brought two of the people who work at the home into a studio. We have to close the door. Yeah, it sounds like you're having a party over there. <laughs> so the story really belongs to this guy. <coughs> Richard Neureiter. Yeah. He's the director of the home, which is called Benrath Senior Center.
2: In
4: Dusseldorf. But
3: we've also brought Regina in. Regina Howe. Who also works at the home and speaks more English. I just helped Mr. Neureiter translate. Shall we do it like this? Yeah. Okay. So, <coughs> Mr. Neureiter has a problem.
2: Um, our problem was that many people leave house. It's a
3: problem most nursing homes face.
2: They mean the people leave the
3: which is that uh, many people who develop dementia, the people with they'll become disoriented. And confused and suddenly think, where am I? And Where am I? This is
6: not my world and I have to go back to my house. My children are waiting for me. And,
3: and usually, you know, nurses will intercept them.
6: Relax, you are living here.
3: But what? occasionally, people somehow slip out the front door.
6: Yeah, escapes, they happen.
3: And then they wander. They had one woman make it onto a bus. And she escaped about how many
6: kilometers away? She eventually
3: made it to a town about 20 miles away. Yeah. They've had people turn up at grocery stores, wandering in the forest. They've even had people make it all the way back to their old houses and find new people living there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for the people who work at the home,
6: says Regine. You, you get crazy not knowing where is the person and
3: where did she go. Test, test, test. Test. This is something we all know about. You, do you guys know I'm working on this story about the, the Alzheimer's? Yes. And while okay. reporting this piece, so, I was checking in with my parents about some stories like this, happened what happened to them. my grandpa. Well. Well. And they told me one I'd never heard. One morning.
4: This was in February.
3: Yes, this was on a very, very very frigid, cold morning. My grandpa got up five in the morning. Yeah. Left the house and walked to the train station. He probably got the earliest tea. Took it all the way out to Cambridge because he thought he had to teach a class at Harvard.
0: Harvard. Did he used to teach at Harvard? No
3: but he'd given lectures there. So anyway. It's pitch dark um, early in the morning, frigid Boston weather. And he was only in his long underwear with his
6: coat and hat and scarf on over that.
3: He didn't even have shoes on. He was just wearing his slippers.
7: He was picked up by the police because he was, you know... Um,
0: hypothermic.
7: Yeah. He was
3: hypothermic?
0: He was hypothermic. I mean, his, when they brought him into the hospital, he his was temperature his... was too low. Damn. I did
3: not know that.
6: It was the moment when I knew that, um, you know, that everything was going to have to change. That he would have to move into a place that had a floor for people who were suffering. A
0: locked floor.
3: That's what it meant. So that essentially is the problem. Some people have to to be locked in. Which just feels cruel. Yeah.
6: It's horrible. Yeah. It is.
3: And then... In walks a fellow named Mr. Goobel. No, no, no.
6: <laughs> goobel. Not Go- Goobel. Goobel, goobel. sounds really awful. Oh, really? Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Try to make it more like
3: Goobel. Goobel.
6: Yeah, Paolo. Okay. Mr.
3: Goobel. No. No? Goobel. Goobel. No. Okay, we'll just like we'll just use you saying it. We'll just, you're Mr. Mr. Goobel. Okay, so Mr. Goebel was an older gentleman. He sat on an advisory board at the senior center. And one day he came up with this idea. That's Richard Norreiter again. And it's one of these ideas that's that's so out there and and yet so simple that you think it just couldn't possibly work.
6: When Mr. Goebel came into the office of Richard and presented his idea, Richard was just
2: laughing. <laughs>
3: <laughs> he thought it very funny. What a funny idea.
2: Well, what
0: is it already? What's the idea? Well,
3: Mr. Google thought that right in front of the home, they should build a bus stop. A bus stop.
0: What? Build a bus stop? I, I, I don't understand. W- what would that do?
3: Well, think about what a bus stop
6: is. When you see a bus stop, it's uh, the first step into the wide world. From
3: a little bus stop, you get... uh, Anywhere. Yeah. Regine says that in a lot of these wandering cases, the the first place people often head is to a bus stop. Ah. And so back to our friend Mr. Groobie. He thought what they should do is build a bus stop right in front of the home that has just one crucially odd feature. There's no bus coming. No bus? Never. It's a bus stop to nowhere. So his thought was, it would be a way of catching people who happened to wander. They'd see the bus stop, go and sit on it, waiting for a bus that would never come. And then eventually a staff member could see them and bring them back.
4: Yeah, chief okay. of the so
3: while Richard's first thought was, <coughs> this is ridiculous. second thought was, hmm, maybe not that bad. So they bolted in a bench, made of iron, put up a sign, in yellow and green, just like every government-issued bus stop. And
6: when you get out of the home, you see it immediately. And the
2: staff, (laughs) say Richard and Regine, just thought
3: this was a stupid idea. Uh, It's not appropriate or it's uh, even cynical. And most of all, that it probably just wouldn't work. Yeah. And at first, it looked like they were right.
2: Yeah, wir haben viel so one
6: by one. The neighbors, you know, normal people, they said, oh, new bus stop. <laughs> and
3: they waited there for the bus. Oh, no. <laughs> and so, one by one, Richard would have to run out and explain. it's that's not for you.
8: <laughs> was
2: steckt, es war eher so there was this
3: period of adjustment. Bus. Yeah. And then one day, an old lady, an actual patient from the home, started having an episode.
6: She was very troubled. Uh,
3: In her mind, she she was a little girl, and she needed to get home to her parents.
6: My mother waits for me. I have to go home, home, home very quick. The nurses talked to her and tried to calm her down, but she began to cry. So they thought, well, let's just let her walk out. It was fall. It was rather cold. So she went to the bus stop in her coat, in her uh, hat. And she sat there, very patient. And she waited for the bus. In the fresh air, sun shining.
3: And eventually a nurse came over and sat with her.
6: And they waited together, side by side.
3: eventually, she forgot why she was there. The nurse
6: said, we go in and have a cup of tea together. And then she came back and everything was fine. She was relaxed. She was in the present time, not longer in the
3: past time. It's been two years since the bench first went up. And Richard and Regine say they use it all the time. Every couple of days. Sometimes the nurses will take someone who's upset and wants to go home. The nurses say,
6: let's go to the bus stop. Let's see what we will do and how we plan the day. And or sometimes the nurses, they don't see that somebody escaped And they say, oh, where is Mrs. Smith? And then they look out of the. oh,
3: she's waiting for (laughs) the bus, and then somebody goes there. But one thing is always the same. When the people get to the bus stop, the mood is very dark.
6: I'm feeling so lonely. I want Mm. to go home. And
3: also urgent. My parents wait
6: for me. My children wait for me. I have to go there quick, quick, quick. But then,
3: after a while as they're sitting there thinking their escape is on the way. That urgent feeling disappears. Do do you know why, or or can, I guess, can you describe it disappearing? Like, does it go away slowly or suddenly?
6: Wie vergessen die dann so Sachen? Geht das dann so oder so?
2: Man unterscheiden, welche Stadien mm-hmm. der Demenz yeah, die Menschen yeah. haben. Es geht ja nicht bei allen okay. gleich. Wir wissen Menschen, uh, so, Richard so, so says, so Kloden, it's
6: like so another thought comes up and then you forget what you wanted. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, fish is coming up to the surface of the water and then going down again and disappearing. Hm. Thoughts come up and they disappear and you don't know that they have ever been there. Oh. Yeah.
3: You forget. (laughs) Which is, it's interesting. It's The forgetting is both the problem and the solution. Yeah.
2: But Lulu, I mean, isn't this maybe a little bit cruel? Because it is a lie that's happening here.
0: I mean, they are lying to these people.
3: Well, sure, it's definitely a lie. There's no way around that. But what's the alternative? I mean, take that woman at the bus stop. What are you supposed to say to her? I know that you're utterly convinced of this, but actually you're not a little girl. You live in a nursing home. As you can imagine, these kinds of conversations don't go well. They say sometimes they have to restrain the people. Hold them back, call the police.
6: They don't accept it because it's not their world. It's two completely different worlds. And so they say,
3: why not just allow that other world To be true, for just a beat, and then gently coax them back.
6: That's the aim of the whole thing, to lead those memories very gently into this now, this today.
3: And this idea has sort of spread at the nursing home
6: it changed the atmosphere in the home now they try Uh, to
3: do this sort of time shifting um, in all different ways sounds a little bit complicated but it isn't like for example they had this guy who's a baker who always used to want to get up at two o'clock in the morning and they used to say no you know go back go back to bed We're, we're working yeah But now they just say, okay, and they let him get up every day (laughs) (laughs) at two o'clock. They take him to the kitchen and let him bake. And
6: uh, then he says, well, I'm always in time and I'm proud. I never miss an hour of my work.
3: (laughs) And the interesting part for me is that I think about my grandpa wandering through the cold in his slippers. And here's this way in which people can be somewhat lost in their memories and yet exist in the present. Safely. Safely.
1: Bus Stop was produced for a radio lab by Lulu Miller with editor Jed Abumrod and consulting editor Soren Wheeler. For a link to more work by Lulu, go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. If you can't wait to hear more great radio stories, you can peruse our library of 1,500 documentaries from all over the world. If you can't wait to talk to us, do! Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up after the break, two people, four failing lungs, and a decision. To wait for a transplant or not. Stay with us.
2: What does it mean
0: to wait? Uh, to wait means to look patiently.
2: It means to hope. It means to expect. It means to be still. It means to rest or to long for. Waiting requires more than just sitting around. Right. And the reward for waiting
1: outweighs the temporary. Discomfort. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxine. Today, we're listening to stories about waiting. Waiting for medical news, like biopsy results, are a torture all their own. Among those, I can't think of anything more stressful than waiting for an organ to become available. A friend of mine was reading the Sunday paper in Starbucks when he got a call that a donor heart was ready for him. Off he went. And today, he's alive and well. But the call doesn't always come. Here is Four Failing Lungs.
5: Hey, it's me. Um, it's Tuesday, I think the 22nd of June. I had my second call for transplant that didn't go through. Um. Another donor was meant to get the lungs. I found out today that actually he didn't because the lungs threw a clot, a blood clot, and they couldn't be used at all. I just tried to recover from the journey last night of thinking maybe I might get my, be getting my lungs, and then I didn't. I'm starting to crack under the pressure, but um, I'm tired. Tired of waiting and tired physically. <coughs>
8: Um, I was talking to my friend with CF who has decided to get a transplant. She's on the list and she's waiting. Um, It could be any day now. I was talking to her and telling her how excited I am for her and how great it's going to be for her. She started expressing how she felt bad for me because I wasn't getting a transplant it just kind of made me think like a lot of people think that if you don't get a transplant you're just kind of resigning to die and that's, that's not the case I, it's the opposite I, I want to live I want to like I want to do everything I can with the time that I have, however much time that may be. I'm Brian Circus, 28 years old. Nope, 29 with CF, Cystic Fibrosis.
5: I'm Mary Elizabeth Peters. I'm 29 years old. I'm a drama teacher and a poet. When I was born uh, with Cystic Fibrosis, Kids lived till about 8 or 10 years old. So being my age and the other CF patients that are my age have had this kind of unique experience of kind of chasing the demographic. You know, now that I'm 29, the average mortality is around 37. I grew up always thinking, oh, I'm only going to live to be 10. Oh, I'm only going to live to be 15.
8: I was diagnosed when I was 3. And I was really healthy up until about 22. And since then, there's a pretty sharp decline over the next like five years or so.
5: My lung capacity kind of was falling away from me in a very slow way as I was growing up and through college. I was having, you know, a little bit of sickness here, a little bit of sickness there. So then by the time I was in my early 20s, I was down to about forty percent lung capacity. The lung function that I'm at right now is about nineteen percent
8: Last year, I got really sick you know they were they were surprised that I recovered, and it was just it's been a slow recovery. I had to move back home from Boston.
5: you know in many ways, college is you know you have all this free time and then you move into the work world and you have to be somewhere every day at a certain time and be there for eight nine ten hours and it gets more difficult to figure out well how am i going to do three treatments a day how am i going to get enough sleep
8: what do i miss about boston i mean all my friends i really miss them i miss the independence i miss fenway (laughs) i miss going to the park driving. when I was in the ICU and my lungs were failing the doctors were talking to me and my family about me dying and all the things we needed to do for, to prepare for that and then just I don't know it just kind of out of the blue I started getting better still don't really understand why Presumably all of the drugs they were pumping into me. <clears throat> so anything would have been better than, you know, dying. <laughs> but no, I you know, went through rehab. It was, it was crazy. I was, I was I was I know. Right, Lily? Yeah.
7: My name is Ahmed Euler, Director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Combined Children's Hospital Boston and Brigham and Women's CF Center. Beth and Brian were part of our CF Center. Cystic fibrosis is a genetically transmitted disease, and uh, it impacts about 30,000 people in the U.S.
8: There's a deficiency in the, it's called the CFTR CFTR gene, gene, or
7: the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator gene, which leads to Dysfunction in multiple organs, it predominantly affects the lung. And in the lungs, when you have a dysfunctioning protein, you end up having a dehydrated airway surface liquid layer. This simple abnormality where chloride is not being regulated properly at the cell surface essentially doesn't allow for bacteria and other debris to be cleared. It also is very hospitable to bacteria. Bacteria
8: can thrive, so bacteria that are normally pretty harmless to regular people will become uh, very dangerous.
7: Um, Chronic infection and inflammation that slowly uh, destroys the lung.
8: It is a disease affecting the endocrine system so most people produce wet slippery mucus. mucus,
5: Which is gross, right? I, I always say CF is the grossest disease anybody could have.
8: Thicker like sticky mucus. The
5: mucus that's in your lungs, that's in your digestive system, in your gynecological system. um, Instead of being thin and being used for its proper functions in different areas of the body, it is too thick. It kind of grabs germs and grabs diseases.
7: Very friendly to bacteria. And
5: keeps them and lets them grow.
7: And uh, in
8: the lungs, it just clogs up the airways. So eventually what we call an obstructive ventilatory defect. You you know, you just have a lot of trouble breathing.
1: You
5: feel kind of like you're drowning all day. <coughs> 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 okay, it's chest physical therapy, so what's happening is that the whole theory behind it is I'm pounding on his chest so that I can loosen all the thick mucus that he has more than you and I, and because he needs to cough it up. Because if he doesn't, that's when he gets the bad infection. The light beating of your chest in different positions to drain the mucus and to open up the airways, literally beating yourself, like beating mucus out of yourself. This is something that he has to have every single day. Coughing helps. Not everybody loves to cough. Because for them, when they start coughing, sometimes they can't stop coughing, or sometimes they cough so hard it makes them want to fill up.
8: When you cough up, that big plug that you just, like, feel has been causing you trouble, and now it's gone, it's it's relieving. It's, it's cathartic. <coughs> And I was really healthy up until when I first started growing sepatia.
7: We usually say that there's no emergencies in CF, um, but this bacteria presents an emergency. A group of organisms that we know that cause a worsening uh, disease in CF patients, in fact, when we use the word sepatia, it is, uh, patients feel this is a, a death sentence. They feel like this is the bacteria you need to avoid.
5: There was a time when it seemed like a lot of patients were contracting sepsis, and ad- adult patients who were doing relatively well, and then and then getting sepsis, and then immediately having a ve- you know very getting very sick very quickly from it.
7: These bacteria um, also impact the way you survive um, post lung transplant
8: because the sepsis can come back even after the lungs were taken out and replaced with new ones. And they think it's because the sepatia doesn't just get into the lungs, it gets into the blood, it gets gets into the whole body. Considering the the life I'd have to live just to go through this, to have you know, just a fifty percent chance of surviving, just didn't sound like a good decision for me. In the way I've lived in my life. You know, I'd rather I'd rather fizzle out, you know, than fade.
7: You know, many years ago, uh, we used to have CF patients play together, go to camps together, and hang out together until we noticed that these bacteria were spreading more rampantly.
8: In the hospital we had our own little CF crew because it was just like kind of a steady rotation of us throughout the year. The nursing staff all knew us and loved us well you know knew us anyway (laughs) and we were just kids and it was kinda like a, a second family
5: and then now in adulthood they don't want us to have any contact at all.
8: You know as we got older Got sicker. My first friend died when I was, I think, 11 or 12.
5: I had a very close family friend um, who actually passed away when I was like 13 or 14.
8: You know, that's when, you start, that's when I started like considering my own mortality.
5: What is my relationship with my lungs? I, I don't hate them. Um, I feel like my lungs are like a really poorly behaved child. You know, that it's like my job to coax them and take care of them and rub them and hold them. Um, but then sometimes they're really, really bad and I and I get really angry at them and want to give them a time out.
8: I don't want them anymore. <laughs> I'm done with them. I, want to, I wish I could break up with them. Yeah, it's not my lungs. It's the stuff in my lungs. I hate that stuff.
5: My biggest difficulties getting on the transplant list was facing the reality um, that part of my body would literally be removed. Thinking of all of those cells and parts of my body and my life's memory and journey taken out of me and then somebody else is put in, it was kind of hard for me to wrap my head around.
8: I mean I would have no problem cutting them out of me. (laughs) Like I'm not attached to these other than them being attached to me
5: it's been just a really difficult couple days and um and people say that i have all this energy and the truth is that i do have that energy and then like one day a month i fucking lose my shit and cry all day so i'm trying to like get out of that mindset but i think it's actually good to just have a day where i just am like this sucks and i'm going to spend my whole year like this and then I might not even make it, which is kind of why I never really wanted a transplant because I didn't want to spend the last year of my life like this, alone in my house, not accomplishing anything or feeling that way, and then I might not make it anyway, you know, so is kind of where I'm at right now. Well, it was really difficult. I mean, I I would say a year and a half ago I I wasn't even considering lung transplant um, because I've watched a lot of friends or family members go through it and have great difficulty or pass away rather quickly after their transplant. My thought was I wouldn't want to die twice. You know, I wouldn't want to go through the whole process of preparing for death and then get a transplant, and then a year later, be dying again.
7: At, at, at
8: that point, when you're so sick that you're needing a transplant, or I should say at this point, um, a lot of times it's easy to feel like you don't have any control. And uh, that that's something I, I have control over, is, you know, it's a decision I can make, it's firm, and also... You know, I kind of know how it's going to be at this point.
5: I get it that, you know, other people would say, if this is it, if this is how my life is ending, I don't want to spend that time being a lab rat.
8: You know, it's just a lot of soul-searching, I guess you'd say. You know, a lot of questioning the ideas that are presented to me and just... I think asking the questions that everyone asks themselves maybe just a decade earlier.
0: Oh, my God, nobody's answering I mean, have we had so
5: many false alarms that nobody's answering?
0: You
5: Hello, it's Beth. It's Beth. Call me back. Okay, I'm going to try one more time, and then i got to get on the road. hi mom i got a call i knew it um as the primary recipient but i gotta get everything right i gotta carl's um here in my driveway so i'm gonna um go and then i'll call you at the hospital give you more details
1: okay you're at boston
5: yeah at boston okay so all right and it's a young it's a young donor i knew it okay i knew it all right okay Okay. i know you're busy call me back okay i love you bye-bye Hi, this is Beth Peters. I um, am a lung transplant recipient from July 27th, 2010. The third time I was called in was the time that I got my transplant. I was feeling really excited and I was feeling really like I just wanted to get it over with because the more time that went by, the more I I started to think about the actual process of it. Um, And that was making me very emotional. I call them boyfriend. (laughs) Because I'm convinced that they're male. I don't know if the donor was male or not, but the things that they do are very masculine. Like they burp all the time. And they make me burp. I never burped before. I'm quite a lady. And now all of a sudden I burp all the time, like a man. The weirdest sensation is that more than half the time when I cough, there's nothing, there's no, it's just like, (coughs) that's it, you know, and I never had that experience before. To know that like normal people cough and clear their throat, and they don't cough something up. Who knew? Well, I remember right after I got my transplant, I told my sister that my lungs felt like a big empty cave, Um, and they still kind of feel that way because I, I can't feel everything, and before I could feel every single thing that happened in my lungs. Like if I had fluid here or bleeding there or whatever, I could feel everything. And now I can't really feel anything. So when I inhale, I can just keep inhaling, and it seems like I don't really know when it ends. So I kind of still think of them that way, as like a big empty cave. You and I have a similar situation, I like kind of up until the the transplant part of it.
8: How's it working out?
5: It's going pretty well. I mean, um, I had a, a pretty rocky road right after my surgery and was really, you know, pretty ill for about a month and then from the point I got home, things have been getting back to normal with kind of a crazy speed. Um, <laughs> I can wake up in my bed and be in my car in like 20 minutes, like which is what normal people do who are like about to be late to work. And, I've never been able to do that before.
8: <laughs> Frankly, I, it just makes me wish I didn't have sepatia. I mean, I would—I uh, think I would transplant a heartbeat if I—if I didn't. A few months ago, I, uh, I had an episode of hemoptysis, which is coughing up blood, and um, I woke up in the middle of the night. I was, like, gargling, and I knew what it was. So I got up, because this has happened to me before. You know, I was just kind of spitting it out as it came up. But it kept coming up. And it kept coming, and I, like, couldn't breathe. And it suddenly occurred to me that this is probably how it's going to happen. This is what dying is going to feel like. Turning 30 for me was more of an accomplishment. My mom, being the wonderful person she is, threw me a huge, amazing birthday party and invited all of my friends from all over and family. I saw assume- a lot, a lot's happened in the last couple of years, and um, you know my life has changed a lot, and my opinions on certain things have changed, and I guess what I've come to the conclusion is that I'm going to pursue a lung transplant. I want to say my gut told me, that, you know. But it's more than that. It just... It just feels like it's right. Because I analyzed it a lot. My gut told me that it would be best for me to just take the time I had and rather than, you know, chase some sort of pipe dream with this lung transplant, um... Make the most of the time I had. Time with my friends, time with my family. Just kind of be happy for every day. You know? And I did that. I did that for two years. I did what I wanted to do. I... I... did it. Then we go back to that day of me coughing blood. That was... A turning point for me that was when I started thinking you know what maybe I do want to try for a transplant like whatever happens happens I'm not nervous about it failing I actually I actually get nervous thinking about what I'm gonna do with myself after transplant like am I gonna have to go back to work really
5: Some of the poems just kind of fly out of me. Um, This poem in particular came because a woman called me a dragon slayer. And I thought, it really bothered me, because I thought, I don't know, I just thought, that's a weird personification of me. In the world of that, like a dragon, a dragon slayer, humans, mythology, I would rather be the dragon, because... The dragon, you know, doesn't ever get slayed by the dragon slayer. Ha
8: ha ha. Ha that's what this is really about. Dungeons and Dragons. It's a fantastic game where you can be anything. You can be anything you want. A warrior prince. An outcast wizard of dark magic. Hell, you could be an orc. Or a half-orc.
5: <laughs> I am a dragon. I fly through the sky, though heavy with wings like steel never tiring. I land upon the sea, perched on delicate feet, never sinking. I plunge to the deepest depth of the sea, never gasping. I do not need to breathe like you. I do not need to breathe.
8: You could be a monk. I had a good friend named Xanthar. He was a half-orc monk.
5: I am a green-white, pink-white, purple-white dragon. I float into the clouds and am invisible. I climb among trees and am a giant. I balance on the mountaintop only to witness. I do not need to rest like you. I do not need to rest.
8: A great gold worm dragon, W-Y-R-M.
5: I am a mythical, imaginary, remembered, and forgotten dragon. I do not fly among you, but I would. I may not fly forever, but I could. I will not fly in silence, though I should. I am not defeated by you. I am not defeated. I am a dragon. People with CF. They have to beat the odds. So th- some things happen and are unexplainable and kind of seem to have a magical quality to them. When you know, if you grow up and people are telling you, oh, you're only going to live to, you're 10, and then you're 10, you're only going to live to your 15 and then you're 15 and then you're 25 and it goes on and on. It, it seems like there's a magical quality to it. you know like, haha, jokes on you, you didn't get me.
8: I'm excited to get the transplant. I'm nervous that I won't get lungs in time. I'm anxious, but just kind of like, you know, going crazy wanting it.
1: Four Failing Lungs by Katie Tolarski. The story first aired on WNPR in Connecticut. In a sad update to this story, Brian Circus passed away in August of 2011 while waiting for a set of lungs to become available. Mary Elizabeth Peters is doing well and started her own company, The Accessible Theater, dedicated to making art more inclusive for people with disabilities. To read an in-depth interview with producer Katie Talarski, visit our website at thirdcoastfestival.org.
2: i to get out of the shower. I need to get ready. Stood outside just waiting for the bus. I'm
7: standing in the lift waiting to get up to my floor.
0: Waiting for this stupid computer to start.
3: I'm waiting for noon. Waiting to have lunch. I'm so hungry. For my mum to call me back.
7: There she is. Waiting for an email. Waiting to use the toilet. Waiting for the end of the day to come around.
0: I'm on the platform. Waiting for my train. I just stood here. Waiting to cross the street. So much traffic.
1: You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Now, if you're in charge of a company's hold music, please, please, I beg you, seriously consider your choices. Nobody wants to hear that for 25 minutes.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.